0: Our passage this morning is taken from Romans chapter 2. We're going to do all of Romans chapter 2 this morning. And there is a good bit for us to cover in the chapter. But hopefully we can do it uh, with some ease as we look at this chapter together. Hopefully we can see how all of it coheres and works together. So as you're turning to Romans chapter 2, let me begin with young Christians and young theologians. Here's my question for you this morning. Do you get really excited to keep the rules, or do you get really excited to break them? Which one are you? Are you an excited rule keeper, or an excited rule breaker, and why? Why do you get excited that way? And what does God think about his commandments, his law, his rules? How does he feel about them? And then you might talk with your families about how that should make us feel about them. But listen for those things as we hear from the good news again this morning in Paul's letter to the Romans. This is the gospel of Jesus in the letter of Paul to the church at Rome. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. He will render to each one according to His works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent. Because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself... For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit. Not by the letter. His praise is not from man. But from God. O Lord Jesus, we pray that you will open to us these verses. A long argument made by your servant Paul. And for those of us living in our time and in our culture, somewhat confusing. So we pray that you will shed light on these verses and open them to us that we may hear and believe and be changed by the good news that we have in our Savior. And we pray, Lord Jesus, as always, that you will... Give to us your gospel in simplicity and beauty, and we ask you to forgive us for all the ways we love to complicate it. We love to add things to your gospel, but they do us no good and they carry us further away from you. So show us the emptiness of all the things we invent, and give to us instead the righteous works of Jesus that save and remake and renew. And for these things, we will be glad and we will give you thanks. We ask all of this in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? I have just two books to go, and I will be done reading the Harry Potter series. So, by my count, having read the first five books, two remaining, I have somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,600 pages to go. I started all of this out of obligation, but then it changed to enjoyment. I was reading just for pleasure, and now it's changed again. I have a relationship to the characters. The characters are the strength of the books, I think. And they actually make me think about myself. They make me think about my own sin and my own immaturity. And they make me think about what I would like to grow out of and grow into. Which is a mark of all good fiction, actually. But in book five, I ran into the worst villain I've encountered in the series... Yet, and there are some real beasts in the series. But this one is the worst. Whenever this villain appeared, there was this felt revulsion and hatred that arose in me. So, who is the villain? Her name is Dolores Umbridge, and she is a bureaucrat an administrator, a rule maker, a regulation enforcer. She becomes the headmistress of Hogwarts, the academy where young wizards are sent off to learn their discipline, and she passes an endless series of killjoy legislations, anything that is cruel and heavy-handed and harsh and mean-spirited, anything to discourage students and to milk out of them a numbed, robotic, lobotomized compliance. And the students all together hate her. She is so awful, they work together to break her rules and to harass her authority. And the professors of the school quietly encourage the students in their defiance. In his review of the novel, Stephen King said that Dolores Umbridge is the worst villain he has ever read. (laughs) Stephen King, he writes horror novels for a living. And he says, of all the monsters ever written, this one is the worst. Maybe because she's so lifelike. Maybe because she's so familiar. No fantasy in her at all. By the way, that's typically the way we view the law of God. It's a sadistic ...school marmish authority. It's put over us to rob us of joy and freedom. And it hides just out of view... ...waiting for us to break the rules... ...and it springs on us... ...and it inflicts horrible punishments on us at once. But what if... ...the law of God... ...isn't like that at all? What if the law... We're less hall monitor and more parent. Because a hall monitor only wants to catch us and contain us... ...but a parent wants us to thrive and grow. That's exactly what the law of God is like. We're terribly confused about the law... ...and we're terribly confused about what Paul says about the law... And not knowing what to make of it, we swing wildly between extremes and we turn ourselves into legalists who condemn everyone and everything around us. And then we slide to the other extreme and we make ourselves lawless and no one can condemn us. And then we assume that we understand exactly what Paul is talking about in the law... ...when we encounter Paul's discussions of the law. And there are more than a few. And we think that every time we encounter Paul discussing the law... ...he couldn't be more against it. But that's grossly inaccurate. And here's the test to prove it. When Jesus came to earth in his incarnation... ...he did not hate the law. He loved the law. He loved it, and he still loves it. Because the law for Jesus is a self-portrait. Jesus loves the law because the law shows what Jesus is like in his eternal perfection. Now for us, it's more complicated. It gives to us a different kind of self-portrait. When we look into the law, the law shows us what we were created to be. And then the law shows us what we are truly like in our sin. And then the law shows us as we are being remade in Christ. So for us, it's this shifting portrait. It's a sad portrait to look at, a portrait of loss. Then it becomes a frustrating portrait to look at, because... It shows us what we truly are and not as we would like to see ourselves. And then it becomes a beautiful portrait for us because it shows us how Jesus sees us and how we will see ourselves in him as he continues to remake us. But for Jesus, the law is much more simple and the law shows him in his full unfading beauty. In my hometown, there was just one photographer. He had a good racket going. Every wedding that needed to be shot and photographed, it came to him. And everybody who wanted to have a family portrait taken on the beach where everybody wears the same outfits. You've lived through more than one of those, I assume. It came through his doors. He got the job. And every fall when the senior class needed its portraits taken, he had this unending flow of business in and out of his studio. So in the fall that I was a senior in high school, I drove three blocks over to his studio to have my portrait taken. I checked in, and they gave me a seat in the waiting room and told me to wait. The photographer was finishing up with one of my classmates. He had on display in the waiting room some of the portraits he had taken that season. And they were beautiful. But they were heavily doctored. They were airbrushed. All these pasty white kids from Michigan. We've never looked so Mediterranean in all of our lives. Deep olive skin. Clear complexions. That wasn't us at all. I sat in the waiting room and I looked at the portraits and I thought to myself, she has never looked like that. (laughs) Not that I've seen. And he has never been that well put together. And the question that really started to race through my mind was... I wonder what he can do for me. Let's just say he didn't do me any favors. He captured me in the reality of all my awkwardness. And all I wanted was an unrealistic portrait like everyone else. And that's why the law is either exciting or infuriating for us. Because we think... It will either make us look good, or we know, we know it won't. But before we get to all of that, let's backtrack and break the chapter down. There are two major sections in the chapter, two paragraphs. So in the first section, verses 1 through 11, Paul says, You can't judge. When you judge, you judge yourselves. Because the ways you judge others for their breaking of the law... ...you break the law in the same way. Paul's saying, you're lousy judges. He's saying that to all of us. So, let me try to connect this first paragraph... ...to the sermons from our first two weeks... ...in the letter to the Romans. Reaching all the way back to our first week. You were called to be saved by grace not to judge from your own false righteousness. And those who have been saved by grace are called to be strongly gracious, so stick to your calling. If we were to reach back to week two, back to last week, God has saved us with His stubborn glory, but it is the job of Glory to judge. Inglorious people can't judge other inglorious people. You are to love God's glory, not to judge from some pretend glory of your own. When you judge, you never get it right, Paul says. And then on to the second section, the second paragraph in verses 12 through 29. In this paragraph, Paul lays out this. Long argument. But in this paragraph, what he's saying is, you don't understand the law. 17 verses of it. Paul is saying, simply, you missed it. You don't get the law. That's it. That's the whole point of this section of the passage. His entire argument is distilled down to that. God has spoken clearly in His law, and sinners have done what sinners always do. We have twisted it. But I will straighten it out for you, Paul says, and he gives it to us in steps. Three of them. First he says, Gentiles who don't have the law, meaning they don't have it written out as it was received from Moses. Gentiles who don't have the law as part of their belief and their practice, their liturgy and their worship... Those Gentiles are still judged by the law because the law still tells us of the perfections of our God. And the law tells us further of our need for Him. So, everyone needs it. The next step, Paul says, but Jews who do have the law, they read it and they hear it and they talk about it. They are judged for their breaking of it. They act as if they keep it, but they don't keep it. So everyone needs the law, and everyone is judged by it. And then here's his last step, with the bulk of the verses supporting this last step. The law is at its ugliest when it is externalized. It's something to be observed and upheld and performed on the outside. It is at its most beautiful when it seeps into us and it is worn on the inside of us. I remember a pastor telling of a conversation he had with a rabbi. And the rabbi said with some disgust and wonder, you know what the trouble with you Christians is? You internalize everything. You think about it way too much. You even do it with the law. We Jews learned a long time ago... ...to externalize the law. We don't think about it. We don't analyze it. We just keep it. And in this passage, Paul would say to that rabbi... ...that's abuse of the law. That's not at all what the law was given to you for. It's not an obstacle course full of hurdles... ...and hazards to run as efficiently as we can... ...with the least amount of inconvenience... ...and the least amount of strain and sweat. The law isn't something for us to beat. It is something for us to be beautified by. Here's another example. I've come to the place in my life... ...where I cringe every time I hear of an elected official... ...who is a proponent of family values... ...because I know what's coming next. And the punchline isn't good. This governor has a mistress... ...tucked away in South America. And this senator is going to be arrested... ...for sexual solicitation in an airport. And just this week... ...a state legislator in California... ...a man who professes everything... ...that would make evangelicals stand up and cheer... ...was in a public hearing room... ...and he was boasting about his extramarital adventures... ...and he was picked up and recorded on a live microphone. You see the problem? It's all external. It hasn't come in and reformed us on the inside. Family values as a policy is an absolute disaster. But as a revolution of the heart... That drives us to go home and learn the hard work of just loving the people God has given to us. With the sacrificial love of Jesus. The revolution of the heart that isn't content to stay at home. But wants to walk outside of the home and love the rest of the people around with that sacrificial love of Jesus. That's what people are dying for. That's what we see far too little of in our world. And Paul is telling us, leave your empty speeches made in state capitol houses and rotundas and just fill your heart with it. So in verse after verse after verse in this chapter, in seven verses all told... Verse 13, verse 14, verse 25, 26, 27, 28, 29. Paul argues that the law isn't something to be externalized. It's something to be internalized. It was never meant to be kept in the way we use the word to be checked off in a soulless, self-approving way. It was always designed to burrow into us and to shape And form our hearts. And then to come spilling back out of us again. And to show itself in practices and habits. But of course our misshapen hearts do what they always do. With the things that they're given. Our misshapen hearts misshape everything. Even holy things given for holy use. Our misshapen hearts have misshapen the law. And we try to make the law something that we can do without being changed by. So here's the gospel in the law. It was never meant to be used to approve of ourselves. It was always intended to make us alive, truly alive to the right things and dead to the deadly things. The law was intended to be written into our hearts. And then those new hearts were supposed to be made public. Those changed hearts were always intended to be worn on the outside. But we're not alive on the inside, spilling over to aliveness on the outside. And it shows up in all of our bad reactions to the law, either in our dead-hearted law-breaking or in our equally dead-hearted law-keeping. But this is a good news book, and there's good news here. And Paul is arguing for us what the law has argued for millennia. We need a conversion. Not a light conversion, not a bargain conversion, not a partial conversion. We need an extensive, top-of-the-line, full-on conversion. Paul is saying we need to be saved from ourselves. We need a full salvation... Because we are sinfully dead in our hearts and our actions, sinfully dead both internally and externally, we need to be saved both internally and externally. We need to be saved in our hearts and in our actions. Jesus came in person to save us in the whole person. The Gospel is not just what we believe. It's belief that finds its way into flesh and bone, just like the Word of God made itself flesh in Jesus. So in His incarnation, Jesus is born as all ten commandments, perfectly formed in one little body, one little life. No one else has ever been this. Jesus, in, in His soul life, contained all the beauty of the law. None other has looked like that. Jesus came to earth as redeeming flesh and his birth means a new heart is going to be born in us and that new heart given to us will find its way out of us in worshipful actions and repentant actions and forgiving actions and ministering actions doesn't a redeemed heart have to wear redeemed flesh In His crucifixion, Jesus wore our death. He wrapped around Himself the death tailor-made from our sins. And by faith in His sacrificial dying, our hearts of darkness die. By faith in His atoning death, our works of darkness die. Doesn't it make sense that a crucified heart will have crucified actions to go with it? In His resurrection, Jesus overpowered death. And by faith in His resurrection, we overpower death with Him. His rising is the rising up of our hearts out of stone-cold deadness to beat and to pulse with His white-hot loves and desires. His white-hot loves and desires. His rising is our resurrection out of rigor mortis of old sins to a resurrection into the agility and the strength of godliness. The gospel of Jesus is flexing and moving and reaching through every part of me now because of the resurrection of Jesus. Doesn't it make sense that a resurrected heart would push death aside and find resurrected ways to live? Belief without action is like Jesus decreeing the incarnation and then not putting Himself in the virgin's womb. Or it's like Jesus intending the cross and not taking the wood and the nails. Or Jesus rising up out of death but not bothering to walk out of the tomb. Belief without action is no gospel. And we need to be saved in heart and in action. And the law shows it, but the work of Jesus does it. And that's the gospel Paul refers to in possessive terms. My gospel, he calls it in verse 16. And that's the gospel that's been given to the church to be lived and enjoyed by ordinary people. Not spiritual superstars. Ordinary saints. So, if you are a self-approving Jew, for our purposes here this morning, we're talking not about a people group, we're talking about a personality type. We, we mean it very much the way Paul means it, but it's not attached strictly to an ethnicity. It is someone who is very self-impressed with his or her own There's sort of a spiritual snobbishness in this one. The judgmentalism that Paul attacks in the first paragraph, it's alive and thriving in this one. So if you're an ugly judge, one who delights in judging others, but you're blind to your own sins, how would Paul, with what he gives us here, turn you inside out? Here's how. Every time you find something to condemn in someone else... ...find something to condemn in yourself. Every time you find some sin... ...some wrong to speak up against... ...and there's plenty of it. Paul gives us a long list at the end of the previous chapter. Every time you find some sin to speak up against... ...find a sin in yourself... To speak up against even more loudly, more vigorously, more aggressively. Look for some evil, some dark thing, something deserving wrath in you and repent of it. Force it to submit to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the pattern we should learn. Every time I condemn, I must find something to repent of. In myself. That will keep me from being self righteous, and it will build me in the righteousness of faith from chapter 1. It will build me in the righteousness that says, I am righteous only in the works of Christ, which are mine in repentance. But it will also work humility into me. You understand humility? We talk about it a good deal. Do you know what it is? Kind of, not really. Humility is the belief that Christ's works must change my works. And so I gladly bow to Him and yield to Him. Give myself to be noticeably changed by Him. For the gospel of Jesus to be made more visible in my life. Because it's taken deeper roots. So it's bearing fruit that's more thick and more lush than what was there before. You know this is true. The Gospel is always sweetest and most convincing from the humble. Not from the self-righteous. It's always hardest to take from the self-righteous. But it's sweetest and most convincing from the humble because these are the people who know it. You can see their need for it as they live dependently upon it. If I'm a self-excusing Jew, how would Paul turn me inside out from what he says to us in this chapter? If I'm one who thinks that he or she keeps the law, but then tramples all over it, like down in verses 21 through 23, how would Paul turn me inside out? Well, the key here is to remember what Christ is and always has been doing. He's not engaged in some heavenly accounting or auditing. He's not keeping a scorecard. Or a grade report. We've all failed in Adam and Eve. So there's no need for Him to do this. What Christ is doing is the work of recreation. He's making us new. Making us pure. Making us holy. And that's what makes the law of Christ's own beauty so productive and powerful and purifying and even freeing for us. It's not something to check off publicly and then violate when no one's looking. Jesus is making us more like himself through his spirit, working on his law inside our hearts, according to verse 29. And no one I can think of would object to any of us looking more, sounding more, acting more like Jesus. No one I can think of would object to that. How would Paul turn me inside out if I'm a self-condemning Gentile? Someone who has been so far away from the law for so long, no no knowledge of who God is, what He's like, no regard for it. We're foreigners to His words and His ways, foreigners to His holiness. For self-condemning Gentiles, people unmoved and unpracticed at holiness and worship. Paul has written verse 4. Don't you know God is being patient and He's not judged you yet? Don't you know that He's holding Himself back? He's holding it off? This is kindness to you. And His kindness in waiting to bring judgment is meant to bring you to repentance. To move you from being god resistors to God-lovers as Jesus reaches into you with His life and His cross and His resurrection as He writes His law in you and He sings it to you through His Spirit breathing in you and living in you. God has given you kindness in order to give you more kindness, a new life, but it comes through repentance. Repentance is a renovation of Heart And the practices that come out of the heart. Repentance says, I hate the way I'm unlike you. I hate the way I'm cut off from you because of my unlikeness. I want you to pour your likeness into me through Jesus over the rest of my life. I want you to make me pleasing to you as Jesus reaches into me and transforms me and includes me in what he's doing in the world with his gospel of expensive, full conversion. Repentance says, I've made a mess of my life. And now I want Jesus to make it into a temple. Paul's message is clear. The law wasn't meant as something we could play games with or work our way around. It was supposed to work itself into us so deeply, it changed us. And so Jesus has come to do the work of changing us. Before he was mayor of New York City in the 1930s, Fiorella LaGuardia was a judge in the city. And one cold winter day, a man was brought into the police court and he was charged with stealing a loaf of bread. And the man's plea was that he had to steal the bread because his family was starving. So LaGuardia said, I've got to punish you. The law is the law. I fine you ten dollars. The man didn't have pennies to buy a loaf of bread. LaGuardia find him $10. Then he reached into his pocket. and He pulled $10 out and he said, Here is the $10 for your fine. I now remit your fine. And he took his famous hat. He was always seen around the city wearing a hat. And he took it and put the $10 in it. And from the bench he declared, Furthermore, I'm going to find everybody in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a city where a man has to steal bread to eat. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant. And the hat went all the way through the courtroom. And this little old man who came in with less than nothing left the court with $47.50, which was a lot of money at that time. Do you see how the law works? Grace always reached through the law to make us beautiful. Grace was always reaching through the law to transform us and change us. But where we have been too hardened to receive it, to accept it, to notice it. The Savior Judge has reached through His own law to give us New hearts worn on the outside. And that is the gospel. Amen. Too often, Lord Jesus, we love to make of your law what it is not meant to be. Something that would approve of us. We pray instead that you would reach into us with your life and your death and your resurrection and simply give to us the new hearts that the law holds out to us. We pray that these new hearts would be filled with your gospel and with your beauty and we wouldn't be content to keep them bottled up and internalized. Instead, we ask that you press us with urgency to wear the new hearts that you create in us on the outside. And in conversion, once we are remade in Jesus, once we are continuing to be remade in the Savior, make the law a thing of beauty to us again. Not the thing that we use to make ourselves acceptable the thing we know, the spirit of the ascendant Jesus is using to form our hearts after his beauty. Allow us to see our sin and to cry over it and to mourn over it and then to push it aside and in the strength of Jesus to follow after the new loves he is filling our hearts with. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would do all of these things so that our sin will be visibly defeated. Don't allow our sin to win or even appear to win. We ask for all of these things so that we can see your gospel will win, is winning, has won with us. Give to us all of this. As always, we will give you thanks. We ask in the Father and the Son and the Spirit.